0: This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday Injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have Christine Soto de Berry of the Prosecutors' Alliance, a group that formed as an alternative to the California DA's Association. Welcome to the show, Christine.
1: Thank you, David. Happy to be here.
0: So, for those who don't know, uh, what is the Prosecutors Alliance? What does it do, and why was it created?
1: Yeah, so the Prosecutors Alliance is really we're the nation's first association that is reform oriented. So, there are obviously plenty of police unions and district attorneys associations around the country, but to date, those have all been focused on status quo approaches to. Crime and punishment. And that is not really reflective of the entire spectrum of people in law enforcement, particularly as the progressive prosecutor movement has grown around the country. And we felt it was important for those voices and those leaders to have an organization to support their approach to public safety. And so we formed the Prosecutors Alliance uh, here in California to help elevate those voices and demonstrate the. Support for reform within law enforcement,
0: and and talk a little bit about the the prosecutor reform movement. Why are we seeing such a big movement at this time?
1: Well, I think we we've, we've been in a conversation in this country for the past decade or so about mass incarceration, and what has become evident to people uh, more distinctly in the last five years. Is that if we're concerned about the numbers of people sitting in prisons and jails around our country, uh, prosecutors really control the majority of those decisions. Most cases are resolved short of a trial and therefore are a result of the decisions the prosecutor makes about what to charge an individual with and what offer to make to them to settle their case. And so there's been a concerted effort around the country for community members and advocates to analyze their local criminal justice system and question whether the prosecutor in their county is really advancing the values of that community or is kind of stuck in the eighties and nineties approach to crime and safety and uh, approaching it in a more draconian way.
0: And then what kinds of reforms are we now starting to see coming from prosecutors?
1: Well, here in California, we've just had some remarkable reforms out of both uh, Chase Boudin in San Francisco and Dia Gascon, and, and lo- most recently in Los Angeles. We have seen policies that eliminate cash bail. We've seen policies to eliminate sentencing enhancements, which can add 10, 15, 20, 25 years to life to people's sentences. We've seen an end of the of death penalty in multiple jurisdictions where DAs have committed to not pursuing that sanction. Um, So there really is a tremendous amount of opportunity for prosecutors to shift the way the entire system is oriented and move away from a punishment-based system to an accountability system and a healing system. And the progressive prosecutors in this state are certainly leading the way on a lot of those efforts.
0: And then what do you see as the organization's role in all of this?
1: So our goal is um multifold. Um, we will certainly be supporting the DAs in their work and helping them identify best practices and model policies as they relate to the California legal landscape. We'll also be working on trainings and opportunities for our line prosecutors that join our organization to get exposure to the leading experts in the field, people that are thinking about criminal justice that are challenging our some of our basic assumptions about this work and helping push the boundaries of where we should go in building a new response to crime. And then we'll also be doing advocacy work. We're uh, actively engaged in the state legislature. We have two bills that we're sponsoring this year and we'll be uh, supporting, I'm sure, many others. Uh, We also worked on the ballot measures in November to help uh, advance reforms or prevent rollbacks of reforms, and we'll continue to engage in those conversations um, in in coalition with community organizations and hopefully be able to bring along more in the law enforcement community.
0: Now, is it just the four prosecutors in addition to... Bodine and Gascone, also Deanna Becton out of Contra Costa, and uh, Yerby Salazar out of uh, San Joaquin. Is there someone else that's involved as well or is it just those four? So
1: those are our four founding members and they form the executive committee along with myself. Um, and we really set the direction for the organization Just those four uh, offices cover 30% of California's population. So we really, uh, with um, even that number, have a significant stake in the conversation. And there are definitely other elected prosecutors and former prosecutors who have expressed interest. Um, Former DA Gil Garcetti has joined our advisory board and has been supportive of several of our efforts. And I expect that we may see others as we move along.
0: Yeah, I I guess you don't think about it that way. Uh, You know, 30% of the population covered by four DAs, but those are big offices.
1: Right. Well, and that has been the challenge with the California District Attorneys Association. You know, there are 58 counties in our state and therefore 58 elected district attorneys. But some of those counties are quite small uh, and they range all the way from counties of a couple thousand people all the way up to Los Angeles County, which is 10, you know, over 10 million. And um, the California District Attorney's Association has functioned much like the US Senate where uh, everybody has an equal vote. And so when legislative reforms and opportunities are presented to the association, there often is not an ability to gain support of the organization because it's a majority vote structure. And the smaller, more rural counties definitely outnumber the large urban counties in the state, uh, even though their numbers in terms of population are drastically smaller. It has made it very hard for those more reform-minded DAs to be able to uh, persuade the organization to take more progressive positions.
0: And I was going to say, that's an organization that really is not just not doing anything to help reform, but they're they're an active obstacle to reform.
1: Yes, they have for decades opposed uh, the reform efforts that have been put before the voters and before the state legislature and are now actively engaged even in um, arguing against our own members and the work that they're trying to implement in their offices.
0: So I wanna kind of bring this now to what's happening in LA and San Francisco, there's the good and the bad, and maybe you could add in the ugly at this point. But uh, mm-hmm. the the good is that Goscone and Bodine have really implemented a lot of cutting edge reforms, as you mentioned earlier. And so that that's made a big difference, wouldn't you say?
1: Absolutely. I mean, those are really, if you think about the state of California and its big cities, the first two you would think of are Los Angeles and San Francisco. And the leadership that they're exhibiting in those communities is having a dramatic impact on the state and the country.
0: Now, I i must say, I think I'm a little surprised that it took as long as it did for there to be a big backlash against CHASA in San Francisco, I mean, he was strongly opposed by the Police Officers Association, but he almost got a year grace period before stuff really started hitting the fan. Um, Would that be accurate to say?
1: Well, I think there's been pushback, um, but they certainly have coalesced around one case and one tragedy, and they tried to use that uh, to accelerate their efforts. But there have certainly been elements within the San Francisco community and the law enforcement community pushing against his leadership from the start.
0: So, are you familiar with that case? I mean, can you describe it uh, for those who might be less familiar?
1: Um, I I do have some basic understanding of the case, um, and and really, what's at issue here, uh, at least from the opponents of D. A. Boudin, is their suggestion is conviction, prosecution, and conviction on some. Uh, lower level arrests may have prevented this tragedy from happening uh, because the gentleman at issue here was released on parole and in the months before a tragic vehicular accident that took two lives, he had several other arrests uh, that were referred back to the parole agency for possible sanctions but weren't the result of new criminal charges. And it is a very standard practice in San Francisco and jurisdictions around the state to allow the the supervising agency responsible for the person to decide whether their conduct warrants more intervention, whether it warrants some kind of punitive response. Uh, So it is a pretty typical response for a prosecutor's office. But his opponents are suggesting that had those cases been filed as new charges and he had been prosecuted, potentially he could have been in a custodial setting and therefore unable to have crashed his car into two civilians killing them. Um, The challenge there, of course, is, you know, no individual in our system has a crystal ball to be able to predict who will or who will not uh, engage in something of that nature. None of the other charges were related to a vehicular homicide or anything of that nature. Uh, And so it it creates a really untenable situation where we're trying to suggest that a person who commits any crime will commit the most serious crime the next time we see them. Um, That is not what the data bears out, obviously, and it creates a very dangerous narrative for us that there should be no distinction between types of crimes or individuals and that there's no opportunity or hope that people will change and redeem themselves. You know, and it's a narrative we're familiar with. Obviously, we have the Willie Horton case where there's a terrible tragedy and people exploit it to their political benefits. And a similar thing is happening here. It's unfortunate because it it prevents us from doing the real work about improving our system and thinking about the interventions that work. We had a man that was in his 40s who had been in prison many times. and and it had not had the impact we had hoped, which would be desistance from crime. The the work we need to be doing is around that, trying to understand perhaps putting him in a cage wasn't our best intervention. Perhaps drug treatment would have been an important intervention. Um, And that work is is critically important and something that I know that DA Boudin would love to have the engagement of the local community and the local law enforcement leaders in helping to analyze and improve.
0: Yeah, and I think you uh, raise a lot of really important points, and I want to unpack a couple of them because, you know, it's easy to, of course, uh, sit back and Monday morning quarterback this stuff, you know, after the fact, oh, uh, of course, you wanted to put this person uh, backing into custody because something horrible happened. but. You know, if you govern that way, if you govern on the worst possible outcome, then you're gonna you're casting a huge net. You're you're gonna put a whole ton of people, most of whom are harmless, some of whom are are people that actually have no threat, and 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 you know they may have made a minor mistake or two, but they really didn't represent a threat to the community. And then you want to throw all of them back into custody, Custody. Right. Um, that, that seems like a very uh, dangerous policy, wouldn't you say?
1: I'd say, and I'd say we've tried a version of that for the last four decades, and it led us to have a prison population that far uh, outspans any country on earth, and it hasn't made us safer. If you look at the numbers, there's a diminishing return to mass incarceration. Some level of intervention is appropriate, and there are some small number of people where very severe intervention is needed, but the vast majority of people, we can find interventions that are less punitive and more effective, and I hope that that's the path we're on. That is definitely uh, the work that has been happening in the last decade in this country is to really question whether a, a massive incarceration of communities of color at an enormous cost to local government, state government, is the path we want to continue to be on, or if we want to step forward. And and to do that, then we have to govern by data, by science, and we have to be led towards a more humane, racially equitable system, rather than running backwards in fear at the slightest bump in the road
0: who do you get the senses behind all of this? Obviously they're using this case to stir it up. And and understandably, you know, it, it's a horrible case. I mean, two innocent people were killed. Uh, so mm-hmm. I, I don't want to d- uh, diminish that, but but it seems like somebody was kind of waiting in the wings for this to really turn it into an indictment against reform.
1: Right. Well you know, the, the the elements are the same in San Francisco and in Los Angeles. It is the police unions, it is the conservative law enforcement voices um, that are organizing this kind of pushback against the reform. And and they have been fighting reform since, since they started, right? When realignment happened under Governor Brown, there was cries that everything terrible was going to happen, this is so dangerous for our state, and that didn't come to pass. And then Proposition 47 and the outrage that everything was going to be terrible and we were going to see massive decimation in the communities, and that didn't come to pass. And with each reform, there has been an outcry uh, from the more conservative elements in law enforcement suggesting that this is the straw that will break the camel's back and we just cannot be safe without a more punitive approach. And it hasn't proven to be the case. Crime rates have continued to fall across the state. So we know that that is not in fact the the truth, but there is a a commitment to maintaining the system as it has been uh, and the lack of faith that we can build something better.
0: And it does seem to be a bit different dynamic in LA. Um, And I've been watching pretty closely from the start. Um, You know, Guscone came out and basically, put his cards on the table but it's not like he was hiding his cards during the campaign Mm -hmm. you know um anyone who was paying attention knew that he was running to be a reformer and he was going to implement uh i'll call it the chase the plan Uh, i know it's slightly different but you know something along those lines of what uh, chase has done in san francisco i was really surprised i i think that um all of the pushback happened so quickly and maybe it's because the office is a little different and i know you worked in the san francisco office for a while so maybe you could speak toward that but it seemed like the san francisco office even though uh you know it hadn't seen the reform efforts of bodine uh was more geared toward that uh, mindset, whereas the LA office was much more traditional under Jackie Lacey. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Right. So, you know, uh, Dia Boudin had the benefit of following D.A. Gascon into office. And so, um, D.A. Gascon had been there for nine years and had implemented many of the reforms that he's now taken to Los Angeles and had taken the staff on that growth process of understanding that we were going to move away from money bail start using a risk assessment, that we were going to start um, rejecting, filing three strikes cases on every case. So the staff had the opportunity to really engage in that work with Dia Gascon for almost 10 years before Dia Boudin came in. And though, um, you know, we've all evolved in this work, the DA before DA Gasco, obviously was DA Harris, who though not maybe progressive by our current standards at the moment she was in office, certainly had a more progressive approach than most in law enforcement. And so the San Francisco office has had the benefit of multiple elected district attorneys asking questions about the work, inquiring about new interventions that might change the way we interface with community. Um, Los Angeles has not had that. DA Lacey had very limited reforms, if any. I mean, I think arguably you could say really mental health was the only one, and it was a quite small endeavor. Um, DA Cooley did not have. And so it has been generations of prosecutors going through that office that have not been asked to question their approach. Uh, They've been asked to do quite the opposite, pursue the harshest penalty, pursue the maximum Um, the appropriate charge that they could file and go hard. And so it has been a big sea change for them. But the pushback to me is not surprising because we saw during the election the union of attorneys in the office gave money to D.A. Lacey to try and defeat D.A. Gascon as did the unions. They spent over $7 million trying to prevent him from winning that race. And so understandably, they're not going to go quietly and accept his victory. Um, and unfortunately, they're not accepting the finality of election results.
0: And in California, unlike in other places, uh, Gascon can't just fire everyone.
1: Right. So there are civil service protections in um, within the office. And so he is not able to, um, in other, for example, in San Francisco, the employees are at will. So you can remove people. Um, without any basis, just because you'd like to bring in somebody different or you'd choose not to work with that person. But in Los Angeles, you have to have an employment-based reason for separating from somebody through a process um, where they have representation.
0: Now, it's interesting. I had a conversation uh, with your namesake in uh, North Carolina, Satana DeBerry. And uh, she told me that when she took over um, basically half the da's quit and so that made it really easy for her to just rework the whole office um, mm. but uh, apparently uh, they weren't, weren't about to make it easy for george uh, down in la
1: no in fact um, people within the union were sending around messages that they were going to stay and make it difficult <laughs>
0: Um, But I I guess we shouldn't be really surprised. I mean, you know, if you look across the country, there's kind of a history of this pushback. So when when Larry Krasner got elected in Philadelphia, um, he had battles with the police department and uh, the state legislature tried to take away uh, some of his powers um, down in Florida, RMS Ayala um ended up not seeking a a second term because they took away her her power uh to decide on death penalty cases um last summer in st louis kim gardner uh was facing uh, a huge amount of pushback and they were uh trying to strip powers from her and then in virginia parisa uh degani tofti um faced a similar problem where they were trying to strip powers from her. Now, of course, the California legislature is not going to do that uh, to the San Francisco or LADAs, but, you know, it just gives you an illustration that across the country, there's really been pushback to this reform.
1: Right. I mean, there's an entrenched opposition. There's no doubt about it. But I think what's clear to those of us uh, doing this work is it, it is a civil rights movement. And there's opposition to that. But I think uh, we've also seen, particularly in California, with 10 years of experience in stepping away from the excessively punitive approach, that there is a better path, that we can do this more humanely, more equitably, that we don't have to cage massive, massive segments of the African-American and Latino community to achieve safety. And that, in fact, we can give people the support and services they need to be Uh, accountable, and better, and that that we all win from that. And so there's opposition. There's going to be opposition. I think we need to expect it, and then we need to continue to be rigorous in our evaluation of the path we're on, but we also need to be committed.
0: So are you an optimist? I mean, do you feel like this is just one more bump in the road and uh, everything will ultimately be okay, or do you see this as an existential threat?
1: I am an optimist. Um, If I look at this work, when I joined the DA's office in 2011, George was really the first person in the country that was pursuing an aggressive reform agenda. And if you look at it now, it has grown leaps and bounds um, in terms of both the number of people elected and the reforms that they're pursuing. And so I have faith that we are on the right path and that we can continue forward but it will require the engagement of not just those prosecutors, but the community at large, right? A big part of why Dia Gascon won in Los Angeles is because of all of the work that people on the ground were doing for a decade, calling attention to the problems in their criminal justice system. Well, Black Lives Matter, activists being outside of uh, the courthouses drawing the media's attention to the issues that they were seeing people organizing in their local community all of that is critical to being able to do this work and it creates the foundation for people to win elected office and be able to make the reforms that people want to see so we without that we will be we would be in danger but i don't see uh, people backing away from their interest in these issues and their hope that we can make it
0: better. Um, And then I'm also wondering, I mean, one of the factors, I guess, in in the reform movement is that it coincided with this kind of historic drop in crime. And now over the last year or two, um, especially last year, um, you know, we saw a huge increase again in violent crime, especially murders uh, and shootings. And so I'm wondering, you know, was the support for the reform an artifact of that crime drop, or do you think it's something more?
1: You know, it, it is something we need to look at. I haven't yet seen any conclusive um, evaluation of that. It's hard for me to say in this moment because we have had such an exceptionally unusual year last year, being in the midst of a pandemic, uh, having an insurrection at the Capitol. Having a, an elected president who is fomenting racial divide—all of those things, I think, create a really complicated landscape for understanding what is driving crime. I mean, we're seeing gun sales have been through the roof, and it is—I would predict—is a lot because of all of the racial tensions and the, and the anxiety people are feeling on both sides of that are causing people um, to feel the need to protect themselves. And I fear maybe also then, you know, the availability of weapons is a difficult thing and it lends to lots of violence oftentimes. And so I think we're gonna need to look critically at that. I would say most of the work we have done around reform has been at the lower end of the spectrum, has been on low level offenses, and it is uh, an opportunity for us to really think about what the right interventions are in more serious cases in cases of violence and how do we intervene um before incidents like that happen and and there's a lot more work to be done there
0: yeah definitely and and the other interesting thing if you look at uh the 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 data Um, on on crime. Crime's gone up kind of across the board, uh, regardless of whether or not reforms have been implemented or not. And so from that standpoint, it seems hard to believe that reforms are actually driving the crime. But it's, as we've seen, it's really easy to take one bad case and blow it out of all proportions.
1: Right. Right. Right, and I you know, and I don't want to do the same thing and say it couldn't have any connection. I, I think that we need to also be open to understanding, um, but I share your your initial perception, which is the reforms have been varied across the country. It's not as if everybody implemented a drug reform and now we're all seeing the consequences of that drug reform, or that we've all in, eliminated sentencing enhancements. The reforms have looked very different in communities across the country. And most communities have been untouched by reform because they haven't had the election of a prosecutor who is advancing that work. So that kind of patchwork of policy reform or absence of policy reform suggests that that isn't what's driving what we're experiencing. Uh, But again, I think we need to look at it, and and we have to be open to understanding that and and course-correcting as we go.
0: So shifting gears a little bit, um, there was an interesting uh, report in the Chronicle several weeks ago about the California DA's association and an audit that occurred. Um, So do you want to talk a little bit about that and what it might mean?
1: Yeah, it was a really surprising revelation um, that the CBAA had Uh, misappropriated close to $3 million for over a decade. Um, The funds that they receive are earmarked to engage in work around environmental protection. And so local prosecutors will bring cases against a Walmart or a CVS or um, a port uh, agency for dumping or other environmental crimes. And the settlements of those cases, because they're against companies, are monetary. And those settlements that come through the courts are to be used only for the advancement of environmental prosecutions. So training, education, investigation, and prosecution. And some jurisdictions had been giving a portion of those settlement funds to CBAA so that they could hire environmental attorneys to work in the smaller counties that don't have adequate staffing. And unfortunately, rather than using those funds for that purpose, as I said, almost $3 million, was used to keep the organization afloat and to do a whole range of things like uh, lobbying, um, training, a whole range of their other operations and they they conducted their own audit with a with an auditor but it is a question now whether there needs to be some larger audit conducted either by the attorney general's office or the state auditor to ensure that uh, everything has been identified and that there's an appropriate path to improve their financing and uh, repayment of those funds
0: so i found it rather amusing, I guess, uh, for lack of a better word, but, you know, one of the, um, so I live in Yolo County, and the DA in this county, Jeff Rising, is the vice president of the CDAA, and whenever, you know, um, his office scores some kind of a victory or, you know, they get a prosecution and they get a conviction out of it or They get a settlement in some of these environmental cases. They're always putting out press releases and celebrating their victories. And uh, this comes out, and uh, here this guy who's made his career on accountability and responsibility is silent. It's the cone of silence of all these law enforcement Tough on crime prosecutors when it's their own backyard that's being investigated. Find that interesting?
1: I, you know, I um, I do. I'm disappointed that there hasn't been more acknowledgement or accountability around that. Yeah, you know, I think. mistakes do happen. I mean, it's part of my approach in criminal justice is people make mistakes. They do things they regret later. Um, But accountability has to be part of the process there. And I think DAs are some of the biggest advocates of that, that there has to be accountability for mistakes. Um, So it is disappointing to see that that same value hasn't applied to, to their own organization.
0: And I'm not saying, you know, give them the, the death penalty or anything. Exactly, but, right. But. You know, it just seemed odd that these people that stake their career on being tough on crime are are suddenly silent when it comes to their own backyard.
1: It's challenging, you know, and and I think when it's taxpayer dollars in particular, you know, we need to be careful, right? And um, I I hope that they are going to take it seriously and conduct an external audit and um, really evaluate their practices and ensure that they don't don't have any other misappropriations or uh, mistakes in their finances. Um, That would be important, I think, for people to feel confident.
0: So, you know, as we wrap up here, I mean, where do you see the uh, Prosecutors' Alliance uh, going? What, what role do you see them playing in the future here?
1: My hope is that we will um, continue to do the work we're doing, supporting each of them in their offices in the pursuit of reforms within their offices. Um, My hope is that over time, we will see more prosecutors elected into office or in office understand the value of our approach and join us in this, and that we will be able to use these opportunities to really engage in dialogue with community members, with legislators, that reform and public safety are actually compatible concepts, that improving our criminal justice system is a pathway to making us safer, not less safe. Um, And I'm hopeful that we can see that work grow and I expect that we'll see interest in other states as we continue to pursue our path here.
0: Well, great. I want to thank you for taking time out from your busy schedule to come on our show and uh, discuss these pressing current issues uh, that are facing uh, the justice system and uh, the reform movement as a whole.
1: It is my pleasure, David. We're uh, happy to do it and uh, appreciate your program and, and the light that you shed on these important issues.
0: This has been Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald. We want to thank Christine soto de Berry of the Prosecutors' Alliance for coming on the show and invite our listeners to join us again next time for more tales from the injustice system.